Welcome to Out of Order. This week, we're doing something a little different in posting an episode recently recorded by our friends at the Democracy Works podcast. GMF's non-resident fellow, Michael Kimmage, joined Jenna Spinell, host of Democracy Works, to dig into the state of democracy in Russia amidst the pandemic and growing public discontent with the Kremlin. They talk about the mass protests in the country, the recent arrest of opposition figure Alexei Navalny, and when it comes to U.S. foreign policy, why Michael believes this is a moment for humility. Michael Kimmage served on the policy planning staff at the U.S. State Department, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio from 2014 to He's also currently a professor of history at the Catholic University of America. Democracy Works is based out of Penn State's McCourtney Institute for Democracy, and it's part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network, which Out of Order is also a member of. Here's the episode. Michael Kimmage, welcome to Democracy Works. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, we should also say a special hello to listeners of the Out of Order podcast who are hearing this interview on their feed as well. I'm glad to be putting this out on both podcasts. So, uh, Michael, there there is a, a lot to talk about in the news right now regarding democracy in Russia. But before we get to current events, I'm wondering if you could just orient us a little bit, even saying the phrase Russian democracy might sound like an oxymoron um, to, to some listeners, given all that we've heard about Russia's efforts to undermine and disrupt Western democracy. So if we if we think of democracy uh, on a spectrum where, you know, you have maybe Canada on one side and China on the other, where where does does Russia fall on that spectrum? How how democratic is it? I think that there are really two two dimensions to to the answer to that question. I think in a in a formal sense, uh, Russia certainly falls much closer to China than it than it does to to Canada uh, or the United States. And uh, I think that you can almost give a kind of technical uh, uh, set of reasons for that. Uh, separation of powers is is non-existent in Russia. Uh, there are serious curbs uh, on uh, on a free media. Um, you know, most business is in one form or fashion a sort of state-owned uh, enterprise. Uh, you know, you have uh, a government that runs much media, especially television, in Russia and does so in a self-serving and propagandistic way. So you have both autocratic rule uh, in, uh, in, in, in the form of the Russian government, and you have a highly personalist form of rule in the uh, in the form of Vladimir Putin, and there are really, at the moment, very, very few checks on his on his power, including, you know, the longevity of, of Putin in office. He really can serve for life, as things are currently uh, configured. So that's one answer to the question. Another answer is that Russians are probably going to measure themselves against other countries, you know, now and then. But more uh, to the point in Russia is is the measurement of where things are against the Russian past or against the Soviet past. And there you get something that's maybe a bit paradoxical or, or paradoxical from our point of view, which is that Russia has probably the highest degree of political freedom now than at any other point other than the very uh, you know, freewheeling 1990s when the Soviet Union collapsed and really everything was uh, was possible. You know, So relative to the Soviet Union, Russians can travel now, uh, which was much more difficult uh, in Soviet times. They can express themselves if you don't do certain things, if you don't criticize Putin too directly, uh, you can express yourself. You don't really have to worry too much about what you uh, say or do. And then the most profound difference, especially for educated online Russians, is that they can go on the internet if they have English and uh, read the New York Times, uh, or they can go on the internet and read, you know, sort of critical uh, journalism about the government uh, in Russia. That would have been, of course, unthinkable in many ways in Soviet times. So, you know, Russians are in in effect freer than they've ever been. But that's far from saying that it's a free society. Sure. And, uh, you know, we we have um, as as part of all this now, kind of this figure of, of Alexei Navalny seems to have have brought a lot of these things to a head um, with with his actions and kind of the, the conflict that he's had with Putin and with the Kremlin. Um, can you tell us a little bit about 
uh, who he is and, and how he fits into this, this larger picture. Well, Alexei Navalny is a, is a young man, especially relative to, to Putin, who's becoming a sort of aging uh, political figure. I think Putin is about 68 years old and Navalny is, is, is 44. So one of the very important points about Navalny, and you see echoes of this dynamic in, in neighboring states to Russia of uh, Ukraine and Belarus, that uh, Navalny is something of a post-Soviet man. Uh, not 100%, I think he must have been about 15 or 16 when the Soviet Union collapsed, but he represents a new style of politics and a new kind of, of politician. You might compare him in this respect to uh, Ukraine's current leader, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, who's also young and has the sort of affect of a, uh, of a younger generation. So that's one important point to make about uh, Navalny. And in the protest of this past weekend and the weekend before, there are a lot of young people going out in the streets uh, to protest. So there's a generational uh, point to be made. Uh, Navalny was not, I think, a household name outside of Russia until very recently. Uh, he was known as an uh, anti-corruption activist. Uh, he has a real talent for social media. So a lot of what he does is videos that's come to the fore in the last couple of weeks, but he's been doing that uh, for years. Uh, and his videos have the manner of investigative journalism. So he sort of brings forward details, especially about the corruption uh, of Russia's ruling classes. So that's what Navalny has been doing. But all of this has really come to a head in the last couple of months. There was a poisoning of Navalny over the summer with a nerve agent, which strongly suggests that he was poisoned at the behest of the Russian government, which is to say of, of, of Putin. And then Navalny was, you know, recuperating in Germany. Uh, and then has very recently returned to Russia, where he's been arrested. And then shortly after his arrest, he released this explosive video uh, exposing the uh, the corruption and also the vulgarity uh, of Putin uh, and his uh, and his cronies. Final point to make about Navalny is it's not clear whether we can classify him precisely as a politician. He's maybe entering into that role uh, at the moment. He's not, I would say, a revolutionary. He's not a sort of Che Guevara type. Uh, he's a thorn in the side. Uh, of the regime, uh, and that through his personal charisma, his obvious courage uh, and integrity, and then his sort of skills at bringing things that that the government doesn't want in public, he's able to bring them into the public domain. Yeah, and he's as as you mentioned, he's certainly shown to be skillful at at marshaling support and, and bringing people out into the streets to to support him and and speak out against Putin and and his regime. Uh, do you have any sense of of whether there's the the makings here of a more organized political movement, or or whether it perhaps has the the potential to become something more organized moving forward? I think it certainly does. Um, you know, I think uh, at the moment, and you know, I think the verb become is, is is absolutely crucial here. At the moment, what this is, I think, is not a political movement. Uh, what you've seen in the last couple of weeks in Russia, a political movement demands something of a structure. It demands a kind of direction. It demands uh, leadership. Uh, and you know, of course, at the moment, Navalny is in jail, so that's. Uh, you know, not an easy position to be if you're providing leadership, but you could maybe analogize back to uh, to Mandela and sort of think about what happened in South Africa. And that took really decades to develop and, uh, you know, was was in many ways intensified by how the government there imprisoned Nelson Mandela. So it's certainly many things are thinkable in the future, but what you have now is not a viable structured political alternative uh, to the to the Putin regime. Uh, but uh, you also don't have nothing uh, at the moment. Uh, and what you see with the protest movement is, first of all, that it's nationwide. It's not just in the two capital cities. So if you go back to similar protest movements, let's say 2011, there was a big wave of protest when Putin was returning to the presidency. Uh, that was really a Moscow-St. Petersburg affair. This is broader than that. So that's one uh, very significant point. Uh, and the other significant point is that, and it's you know difficult to gauge these things, but the regime, the government seems to be overreacting. So that I think, uh, and it's you know it's a little bit daunting to contemplate, but that I think is the logic of this. Uh, Navalny is going to achieve what he'll achieve, or his supporters, his followers will achieve what they'll achieve, not simply through their own efforts. They need to get the government to show its most violent, sort of ugliest face, uh, and in that sense, they can use that to mobilize. 
greater and greater degrees of support. In fact, that's sort of what you saw in Ukraine in the winter of 2013-2014, and that did result in the the president of Ukraine fleeing, Yanukovych was his name, fleeing to uh, to Russia and giving up power. I, you know, I don't think things will happen that quickly in Russia. I'm not convinced. In fact, quite uncertain that that would be the outcome in Russia. But that's, uh, I think, the scenario and the palpable anxiety of the Russian government of Putin and the Russian government is certainly a sign that something really serious is afoot. Well, sure. And and as we record this on February 1st, I, I was just uh, reading this morning about this. This past weekend, there were more than 5,000 protesters arrested throughout the country. So it, it, it seems that it's it's turning from from anxiety into something that's actually physically manifesting itself. And, and it, yes. it, it also seems that the, the Kremlin is is playing into that kind of strategy that, that you were just outlining with the protest movement drawing out the worst of the, the Putin government to in turn garner further support. Yes, no, that's, that's, uh, that's very true. Um, you know, I think if we take a step back and go to Belarus this summer, so there, you know, in a country that was seemingly asleep for about 20 years, uh, you had explosive protests, uh, you know, it was a manipulated election that everybody knew. And, you know, that's was no secret there. Uh, but people reacted to it in a new way this summer. You know, we could take another step back and, and talk about the effect of the COVID crisis on both Russia and Belarus. That's an important uh, factor here. But in Belarus, things exploded over the summer. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of the journalism that uh, was written then, and I think this is something to bear in mind with Russia at the moment, focused on the protesters. But one needs to also factor in the kinds of loyalty that the regime has. And so one of the interesting questions with Belarus I find in the last seven, eight months is why have the police and security services remained loyal to uh, to the dictator, to, to Lukashenko and his, uh, and his government? And we'll have to ask, I think, as we go forward, sort of similar questions about Putin. I mean, Putin commands enormous resources. So if it comes to a monopoly on violence, he's got that already. Uh, and he can use a great deal. Uh, and uh, that will be the question, really. Uh, you know, even if you could get millions upon millions of people on the streets, if the security services remain loyal to uh, to Putin, it will be difficult to move uh, the situation, you know, from, from beyond where it is at the moment. Uh, but if the loyalty there begins to crack, or what's also possible if you start to see fissures within the Kremlin itself, so other politicians who begin to break away from Putin, then I think um, uh, the whole situation could change very rapidly. Sure. Uh, so you and I were talking a little bit before we started recording about the phrase pro-democracy protester that's often used in in media reports of protest activity in, in Russia and elsewhere. I'm thinking of of Hong Kong as well. I've seen it a lot there. Um, but you you were saying that there's sort of several ways to think about that phrase pro-democracy protester and perhaps a very specific Russian context that's worth considering as we're thinking about this this broader movement. Yes, uh, there is a long tradition in Russian culture, literature, poetry of, of sort of longing for political freedom. Uh, there is a long tradition of dissent uh, in Russia, Soviet Union, Russia, Imperial Russia. Uh, and there is a long heritage of, uh, of democratic thinking going back to the 18th century in Russia. Uh, on the other hand, um, I don't think democracy is the word that stirs most Russian hearts in the way that it does uh, a lot of American hearts and, uh, you know, sort of European hearts and, and, and hearts elsewhere uh, in the world. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you look at polling data about Russia and this, you know, you sort of take it for what it's worth, but you look at polling data, there's often an affection among Russians for strong rulers uh, and uh, even the popularity uh, of somebody like Joseph Stalin that's been borne out by a lot of polls in the last five, 10 years, which is startling to, to, to Westerners, uh, is, is, is sort of an aspect of that. So that's one thing that's in the mix. But the other, I think that's more to the point that's more salient, and this speaks to Navalny's own career, is that what Navalny really shows in the Russian context uh, is uh, the corruption and vulgarity of the Russian government. Uh, you know, Russians live on small salaries, most of them, uh, COVID crisis has been devastating for anybody with a small business, and you haven't seen the kind of uh, financial support for businesses in Russia uh, that countries like Germany and the United States have given in the midst of the COVID crisis. So people are really 
suffering. And then I think when that's the case and you see the corruption, the graft, uh, the self-indulgence uh, of the ruling class, that's really horrifying and it's disgusting. And that I think is why, let's say 80, 90% of the people are going out on the streets. I think it's a leap from that to say that Russians are going out on the streets at the moment because they want to construct a Russian democracy. That's certainly true for some of them. And maybe in a best case scenario, that would be the end result of these protests. But I don't think that that's the logic of a lot of the people uh, on the streets. I think it's a little bit more like, maybe we would want to analogize it here in the US to sort of city politics. Uh, and you have a city where, you know, the waste management is not working well. And, uh, you know, a lot of the taxes are going into the hands of, uh, of greedy and corrupt politicians and people have just reached a threshold. They can't take it anymore. And they're sort of going to, uh, to protest. But what system they have in mind, do they want to get rid of the existing system or do they want to improve it? I would just look at those at the moment as very much unanswered questions. And so what we have to be careful about here is not substituting our narratives uh, for their narratives and be very sort of alert and careful to understand what the on the ground narratives are over uh, over in Russia. No, that's 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 a great point. Thank you for for drawing those those clarifications. As as you were speaking there, I was I was thinking a little bit about um, some of Donald Trump's uh, rhetoric throughout his campaign, throughout his, his his presidency. I think we saw you know some similar grievances uh, among his supporters feeling like they had they were not doing as well economically mm. and and mm. and these sorts of things and one of the things that that Trump and those who support him did was they were kind of able to marshal that into a, a, a hatred or kind of point the finger at someone else besides him and I, I wonder if there's mm. any any parallel efforts by Putin and and his regime to do that in Russia, or if this is uh, a tactic they may turn to as as these these protests and this kind of unrest continues. Yes, it's a, it's, it's a great question, uh, and uh, I think there are actually a lot of a lot of parallels. Uh, we in this country tended to focus when Trump was president on allegations of. Uh, Putin's direct support to Trump. And that's a big story here. And I think we're not at the end of it. And <laughs> let's let the evidence take us where it takes us. And and, and it may, uh, in the end, show something very disturbing. Obviously, Putin did meddle in the 2016 election. But I think in some ways, that's the less interesting aspect of the Trump-Putin relationship. I think that Trump really did admire Putin in some general way. In other words, I don't think he was being paid to admire Putin. I think that he had a genuine admiration of him. Uh, and it's pre precisely along the lines that you're sketching. So Putin is a populist. Uh, he uh, uh, is disliked by the urban elites uh, of Russia and has been from the beginning. He uses a kind of crude vernacular often in his speeches, uh, expletives and sort of crude uh, phrases. And that generates a certain or generated in the past a certain kind of popularity for Putin. And most importantly, uh, the politi politics of binary <laughs> stigmatization, to, to put a fancy phrase behind it, uh, is very much what Putin has done. Partially, it's a sort of us-them rhetoric, real Russians versus those who are, you know, sort of pro-Western. And you can see how that, you know, could map onto American politics. But for Putin, the most powerful example of that is us-them in the sort of national sense. So especially the conflict with the United States over Ukraine, over Crimea, conflict with the West uh, has been uh, fundamental to Putin. Now you see that uh, to a degree with, with with the Trump administration, you saw that with immigration, that you know, sort of these outside forces are coming and corrupting our politics and sort of us them. But I think for Trump, it was sort of us versus the liberals. That was the most active version of that. But there was an enemy. And you think of the phrase that Trump used for the American media, right? Enemy of the people, which after all comes from the Soviet Union in the 1930s, uh, sort of Stalinist phrase. Uh, is very clear. You know, there are the friends, there are the real Americans, and there are the enemies. So what will Putin try to do? What has he tried to do in the midst of the crisis of the last 10 days in Russia? He's blamed the West. So he refers to Navalny as a foreign agent, um, you know, says that the State Department, the CIA, etc. are behind him. That's been a long, you know, sort of propaganda point uh, in Russian politics, and it will be applied uh, to Navalny. And then I'm not sure if Putin can pull this off, but I think he'll try to paint uh, Navalny supporters with the same brush, that these are second-rate Russians, they're sort of non-Russians, and uh, they're the servants of foreign powers, and this is really about the West using somebody like Navalny to sort of weaken us and break Russia apart, uh, pick it apart, etc., and, and, and you'll see that sort of rhetoric. So, you know, I think for Trump, if you want to you know, sort of finish the point, 
the Ostend dynamic was really mostly internal to the U.S. For Putin, it's going to be the Ostend dynamic of the U.S. and the United States, and he'll put Navalny right in the center of that. Yeah, and and is it part of a Russian? culture where there could end up being counter demonstrations, you know, pro Putin supporters would come out and and get into it with the, the pro Navalny demonstrators or, you know, again, thinking about some of what we've seen in, in the U.S. regarding the, uh, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter and, mm-hmm. you know, folks who were on the opposite side of that. And that that seems to be part of the the culture here in in the U.S. I'm wondering if there's there's a parallel there in Russia. I mean, of course, the country doesn't have freedom of assembly. So um, if this sort of stuff happens, it probably wouldn't be spontaneous. Uh, What you might see is that the government will start to bus in its supporters. You've seen this in Belarus that uh, you would have anti-Lukashenko protests and the government would bus people in or maybe pay them. 10, 15 bucks for the day, and then sort of call them pro-government protesters if they were, in fact, <laughs> pro-government is uh, is is very much uh, another question. So if there is a kind of violent on-the-street response to Navalny supporters, I don't think it will be, uh, I don't think it will be spontaneous, um, but it's very plausible uh, and it's very uh, easy to imagine that that would be uh, something that Putin would use to try to demonstrate his basic popularity already. He's put out some sort of clumsy videos in the last week of, you know, people sort of saluting the president and saying that he's, um, you know, the proper leader uh, of Russia. So there will be efforts to sort of mobilize uh, and 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 do those sorts of things. And I think it's really the big open question. I don't think Putin is grievously unpopular in Russia. So there is a pro and con uh, to this argument. Uh, and what you're not hearing from at the moment are sort of the more nationalist conservative uh, circles, uh, and maybe they just feel well served by the government and they'll sort of sit on the sidelines, or maybe they'll want to sort of get into the fray uh, with Navalny. It's another of the huge challenges, actually, if Navalny would really start to emerge as an alternative, and let's say Putin would flee the country or you know be deposed by people in the Kremlin, then how do you build sort of a new political culture? It's, it's unfathomably uh, complicated, but I wouldn't underestimate at the moment a kind of baseline popularity for Putin. Let's just review the numbers for a second, right? We had 40,000 people the week before this past weekend demonstrating in Moscow. That was a sort of general estimate, maybe 40, 50,000 Moscow, St. Petersburg this past weekend. I mean, Moscow is a city of 14 million people. So 40,000 people is less than 1%. Now, maybe they have the sympathies of a lot of people who are sitting at home. That I don't don't pretend to know, but uh, uh, it's, uh, you know, the Kremlin uses the statistic that Navalny gets 3% of the support from Russians. I'm sure it's much higher than that. Uh, but these are the unknowns that we're, uh, that we're dealing with. And it suggests to me that Navalny's path forward is a very, very difficult one. It's not, um, uh, it's not an easy one to navigate. Uh, and it's you know, sort of precisely that issue of how popular he is, how popular Putin is. And uh, you know, those are two profoundly uh, difficult to know questions. Yeah, and and of course, you know how how the pandemic continues to play out, how how the country's economy continues to either decline or perhaps rebound. I'm sure those things will will be will be wrapped up in it as well, in terms of how how motivated people are to actually push for change versus okay, well things are you know doing better now. Maybe for me, my family, my business, so we're we're confined with the the status quo as opposed to seeking to disrupt something. Yes, and I think one can you know sort of pick over all of those. Points. The economy is doing badly. Uh, that was one of the big selling points of Putin in the first eight years of his presidency from 2000 to 2008. You had oil prices going up. Uh, and yes, it's true that much of that was siphoned off for the sort of uh, elites of the government, but it also did trickle down in those years. And there was the emergence of a real Russian middle class. And I think that that you know, boosted Putin enormously. And then you had the nationalist spirit in, in, in 2014, the annexation of Crimea, uh, and that was another bump for Putin in terms of his popularity. But since 2013, 2014, living standards have been declining. Uh, and, you know, especially for people who are not in the in the minuscule Russian upper middle class or economic elite, that's clearly a key factor in these protests. It's really why Navalny's messages uh, are resonating now more than they did five or 10 years ago. As to the coronavirus, you get two conflicting data points. One is that uh, Putin's handling of the coronavirus was terrible. Uh, He was aloof. 
he didn't do a lot of things. You have the Russian government functioning as it typically does, which is to say manipulating information and hiding things from view and trying to use the state media to get the appealing story out. And so everybody knows in Russia that the coronavirus deaths are much, much higher than publicly uh, listed. And they know that their government didn't do that much for them. It sort of left them on their own. And especially, I mentioned this a moment ago, but it didn't give the kind of, you know, unemployment pay or, you know, stimulus money that uh, uh, by comparison with the U.S., you know, U.S. did, the U.S. government did dole out a lot of that money in the last year. Uh, and that was basically non-existent in Russia. So that's created a huge amount of frustration. You know, that's a real, real stimulus or a real catalyst for these protests. But I said a complicated data point because the Russian vaccine, which came out kind of earlier than most other vaccines, seemed to be doing pretty well. Uh, and so there's one, you know, area where the government could say that uh, we sort of came in and we helped you and we offered a certain amount of support. Final point I'd make here with the sort of economy, coronavirus, where things are for normal people is that 40% of Russians work for the government in one way or another. So if you work for Gazprom, the major oil gas company in, uh, in, in, in Russia, it's a state-owned enterprise. If you work for a lot of other businesses, it's owned by the state, not to mention people in the army, security services, etc. So that's a, a, a tricky circumstance. I mean, if you're going to topple the government, <laughs> you have a lot of people whose lives are going to be affected by it, a lot of people who are dependent on this sort of corrupt rickety system. And that uh, makes me wonder really how viable scenarios are of, of actually toppling the government. But uh, the countervailing pressures, the frustrations about the bad economy and government mismanagement, those are enormous at the moment. Sure. I, I want to shift things here slightly and, and talk about um, how Navalny and, and how the, the protests of the, the past few weeks are kind of being perceived outside of, of Russia. You had a piece in the New Republic uh, a week or so ago, which, which we'll link to in our show notes, um, where you talk about um, perhaps some of the, the miscalculations of the early Obama years and in, in, in terms of how it thought about democracy in Russia and, and kind of advancing a, a pro-democracy agenda there and, and maybe you know, offering some, some words of advice for the Biden team about how they, they should be thinking about this. So can you um, walk us through, I guess, first sure. kind of what, what, what the Obama philosophy was and, and maybe where that might have fallen short and then you know, what, what Biden might do differently now? Yes. Well, you know, the Obama philosophy on this had, had two phases. Uh, one was when Obama first came to power in 2008, and you had a new president uh, in Russia, Dmitry Medvedev. And now we know in retrospect, maybe, you know, sort of Putin was <laughs> was the puppeteer all along and, and he was predestined to return. You know, we can make those arguments now. People uh, didn't know that then. And so I think the Obama administration made a really good faith effort uh, to work with Medvedev. And Medvedev sent a lot of positive signals that he, you know, he went to Silicon Valley and he wanted to modernize the economy and he wanted to you know, cooperate with Americans on uh, on business. And there's the famous photograph of Obama and Medvedev eating hamburgers together in Washington, D.C. Uh, so it's, it was a sense that certain things were possible. And then there were, you know, arms control deals and other things that uh, the Obama administration worked out with the Russian government that was called uh, the reset at the time. Uh, and it was a period of, of optimism. And I think the American hope was that, you know, Medvedev would be a first step and maybe somebody else would come or Medvedev would secure power and, and, and sort of take Russia in the direction of, of Europe and modernization and, and, and greater political pluralism, rights, etc. You know, uh, how optimistic people were at the time, I, I, I don't quite know. But that was at least the, the hope. But then Putin comes back and you get this huge uh, clash between uh, the U.S. and Russia over uh, over Ukraine, where, um, you know, it's not quite a war, but uh, it, it, it uh, sort of inches in that uh, direction. So I would, uh, you know, make that uh, a part of the uh, of the uh, of the place where the where the Biden administration should begin. Uh, you have to accept that there is this tension between Russia and the United States. And you also have to accept until this changes, when and if it does, that Putin is Russia's president. So, you know, we might look at Navalny and say, there's a charismatic, decent man. We would love to see him thrive. Uh, but the Russian government is the, <laughs> under its under its current leadership is the government that we have to deal with. So for the U.S. government, the conclusion I would draw uh, is, you know, the U.S. government is a, is, a, is, is a geopolitical factor in Russia. It's enmeshed in all kinds of 
tensions, conflicts, uh, you know, extending to the Middle East, even to Latin America, uh, but acutely uh, in Europe. And the first responsibility of Biden, I would say, is to manage those tensions and conflicts. And what you do with that is you support your allies, which Biden has already, you know, I think done brilliantly. Uh, you stand up for democratic principle uh, for sure, uh, but you also don't jump into Russian politics uh, all that directly. The idea that we could be a kind of neutral actor there, a third party, a kind of honest broker between the Russian people uh, and the government is, is it's beyond wishful thinking. It's, 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 it's craziness uh, and will lead to very, very dangerous clashes between us uh, and Putin if that's the, the road we want to travel down. I would also say something a little bit different that, and I, you know, I think the Biden administration has uh, has made this point already. It's not uh, in any way original with uh, with me, but uh, this is a moment for a certain degree of humility, uh, both in American politics and American foreign policy. I mean, we just on January 6th had a group of American citizens storm the U.S. Capitol. We had a president who tried to steal an election. Uh, you know, we have... Uh, you know, quite considerable uh, political polarization here at home. We have inequality. We have the COVID crisis. That doesn't mean that we bow down in our foreign policy, but I don't think it's the time to sort of bang the drum. Uh, and the, that matters to Russia in the sense that I don't think Russians are looking to the United States at the moment to save them. I'm not sure a 25-year-old Russian looks at the United States and says, that's the country I want to be or that's the country I want to live in. Um, yes, they may be poisoned to a degree by anti-American propaganda in the Russian media, but it's deeper than that. You know, I think that they look at the U.S. and they see that the U.S. has uh, quite a lot of problems. So it's not, I think, in the role. <laughs> if the Russians, you know, get rid of Putin, they come to us and say, how should we set up our uh, Supreme Court? How should we set up our constitution? By all means, we should uh, offer whatever wisdom we have. But beyond that, I, I just don't think it's our role to, uh, to go and say uh, what form of government Russia uh, should have. And if we look back at the last four years, and you know, I'd ask most Americans, should Russia have a say in the form of government that the U.S. has? I think most of us would give an emphatic no to that answer. So, you know, I would take that to heart, just make that an aspect of policy uh, as well. You know, sure. as a footnote to that, American citizens, NGOs, think tanks um, should be doing all that they can to contemplate and uh, to, to help into existence a, a true Russian democracy. I don't think American citizens have to stand back uh, and be silent or be uh, excessively pragmatic, but the government has to recognize its its limits. That's what I would say. Yeah, and, and would you give the same advice to the EU, or are the other dynamics different there? I mean, the EU, I think, is is less of a threat to Russia, uh, although there are these disputes between Russia and the European Union on the periphery, uh, and you're going to have Georgia. Uh, is 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 going to attempt to enter the European Union in the next year or two? So there are going to be a lot of issues that will uh, that will come up, uh, and uh, you know the Putin government is not going to look if, if if he stays in power is not going to look kindly on the at the at the EU in 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 those domains. Uh, but yes, I would say something similar for the uh, for the European Union. Uh, you know these sort of consistent statements of outrage about Navalny. Uh, we demand that he be released. Um, you know, I'm not against those. That's that's normal diplomacy. There's a kind of manner of doing it. But you have to be careful about sort of believing it in a sense. If you don't have the leverage to make that possible, if you're not going to, you know, and I don't know <laughs> what amount of sanctions on the Russian government would get them to release, release Navalny, probably more than we'd be willing to uh, to accept. So if you don't have the real leverage, I mean, those words have a certain value, but I, I sort of feel, this is maybe putting the point, point more bluntly than it deserves to be put, we make these statements more for ourselves than we do for, for Russia's sake, uh, because we don't have the power to shift uh, the situation in Russia. So, um, yes, I would I would say that the EU should acknowledge certain limits, but I would also say that Angela Merkel was entirely right to accept Navalny into Germany to see that he recuperates. She was right to visit him uh, in person. You know, that's... Uh, uh, entirely within her powers, within her rights, and I think it sends the right uh, signal. But, uh, you know, beyond that, I wouldn't be reaching our official hand into Russia and trying to do anything. I, I would leave that up to the Russians. Sure. And, uh, you know, think, thinking about the, the difference again here between rhetoric and, and, and action, you know, one of the, the hallmarks, of course, of, of democracy is, is compromise. And so I'm wondering to what extent there might be possibility for compromise with this, this situation in Russia. Is, is it just going to kind of be, 
you know, two sides staked in their their camps, kind of the the the, the pro Navalny and then the the the, the pro Putin, pro government. Is is either side going to blink here? Is that is that a you know is there is there precedent for that in in Russia's history? I think it's possible. Um, you know, this is not the most heartening of examples, but you could go back to 1905 when Russia loses a war uh, to Japan uh, and Tsar Nicholas II concedes then that there really has to be change in Russia. And so he creates Russia's first parliament, which he then proceeds to you know, sort of render obsolete through <laughs> through the habits of authoritarian uh, rule. But that's the first time that you really get political parties in Russia. And, uh, you know, who knows, without the First World War, maybe it wouldn't have ended as, uh, as sort of catastrophically uh, as it did, um, you know, what you also had then, maybe this is the example that, you know, somebody like Putin would take seriously, is you had the empowerment of some very powerful ministers uh, in the Russian government to serve as, as modernizing agents. Uh, and, uh, you know, that might be a model that Putin would think of if he can find ways of, of delegating power, uh, you know, or perhaps tolerating uh, another political party uh, that would help to let off steam uh, on the one hand, but wouldn't be, uh, you know, equivalent to his just packing up and leaving or, 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 or sort of trying to, uh, to run away. So I'm sure that they're complement, contemplating those kinds of options uh, in the Kremlin. But, you know, you could take the other example. So maybe 1905 is a checkered example of how you can change and reform without uh, brooking a, a revolution. But you think of Gorbachev, and this might be more to the point, Gorbachev also recognizes that there's a need for reform and, you know, standard of living has to be improved and people need more of a voice. And so he creates Glasnost and Pidistroika in 1985, 1986. And then six years later, the Soviet Union goes up in a puff of smoke because people use those freedoms to, um, you know, just get rid of the whole communist uh, system. So that's the dilemma in which Putin stands. He's dead-ended himself. Uh, he's stayed on too long. Uh, he's losing touch with the population that he... Uh, rules. He's increasingly relying on propaganda uh, and coercion. Uh, and I think, you know, we could take a broader view than just Russian history. I mean, you just see where those things lead over time. Uh, and they lead to either violence in the inner circle, or they'll lead to violence on the streets. Uh, and something that comes not through compromise, which would, I agree, be both the democratic path forward and the pre preferable path forward. Because, you know, once you get to uh, armed conflict, uh, you know, a lot of terrible things can happen. But uh, Putin, I think, is is sort of paving the road for that. Uh, he's paving the road for a violent outcome uh, by relying more and more on lies and more and more uh, on uh, on violence. And maybe that, if you take a step back just from these events, is the tragedy uh, of where things uh, are at the current moment. I, I wish I could be more optimistic in a way about what Navalny signifies, and I wish I could have more hope that he could really build something uh, you know, better than what Russia has, but I think it's maybe more the crisis of Putin than uh, the situation of, of of Navalny that's the key story of the moment. Uh, you know, you were you were talking earlier, Michael, about the the need for humility on on the part of America and kind of looking at the state of our own democracy as it as it might relate to other other countries. Uh, you know, Russia in in particular. I'm wondering how how you balance that need for humility with the actual threat that we know yes. Russia has posed and continues to pose to democracy in in the U.S. and and other other Western countries. Absolutely, I'm going to add one more word to humility. Uh, uh, you know, to to sound even more to sound like I have even more gravitas. I would say sobriety. So humility when it comes to democracy promotion, just vis-a-vis -vis where Russia, where the United States is at the moment. We have to earn um, a bit more uh, when it comes to uh, our internal democracy before we can make very strong statements. The U.S. government can make very strong statements uh, abroad. Uh, I, I think we will. And, and when we do, then, uh, um, you know, we can change our tone a little bit. But uh, uh, sobriety also. Uh, so here's, uh, to me, a more dry point, even if we would... Um, you know, be in a state of complete self-confidence about American democracy at the moment. Let's look back at a number of these revolutions in the last 10 years, 20 years. When's the last one that uh, where a tyrant has been toppled and it's worked out well? Uh, let's go back to Iraq. Um, you, know, you have the Iraq war, the tyrant is toppled, uh, and it's been, you know, sort of chaos and devastation uh, ever since. Not that it was good before. Uh, you have Egypt, where there were so many hopes invested 
uh, in Tahrir Square and the sort of a moment of democratic transformation. And what did you get? You get the uh, Egyptian military uh, at the end. You have Syria, which was a democratic protest movement and sort of uprising, and you have civil war there. Of course, you also have uh, Ukraine, and you have uh, um, you know you have uh, Tunisia, and you have other sort of more positive examples of uh, you know corrupt dictatorial governments that have been overthrown and, and and perhaps something better has been put in place. But I would also mention sobriety. I mean, if, even if it would be possible for us to assist in the toppling of Putin, uh, you know, would that really yield something better? And I think recent history would suggest that we should be very careful uh, on that point. So humility and sobriety. But you're absolutely right. Russia is a threat in a number of areas. But I would detach this conversation from the conversation about Navalny, because Navalny is not the solution for the U.S., at least in terms of what we can practically achieve with our foreign policy, the solution to Russia's meddling in 2016 or 2020, and it's going to go on in the future, is not to funnel money to Navalny and get him to overthrow Putin. Not that <laughs> you were propo- proposing that in your question, but that is you know, the sort of logical inference if we make Navalny the center of this. The solution to the problem of meddling is to impose costs on the Russian government, on Putin's government, uh, and also to build up resilience uh, here at home. In other words, the solution to these threats that Russia poses, whether it's in Syria, whether it's in Belarus, Ukraine, or you know, through social media, in the political cult- uh, cultures of ourselves and, and, and our allies, uh, the solution to that is better policy, which part of which means being tough on Russia and part of which is building up uh, our internal strengths uh, and resilience. But in no way do I see Navalny as a solution to any of those problems uh, in the short or medium term. And if Navalny emerges three years from now as the pro-Western, democratic, non-threatening leader of Russia, you know, that's a wonderful outcome, but I just don't see that there being any, you know, sort of path from our policies at the moment uh, to that kind of outcome. So I would peg, you know, the meddling and the sort of military issues to, um, you know, to our own policy choices, but they're policy choices that are framed by how we deal, not with Navalny, (laughs) but with Vladimir Putin. Sure. And, you know, one of one of the kind of grievances that that Navalny and those who support him are kind of airing is just the, the level of, of corruption. I think they might have used the word thieves and, and you know, how they, they talk about about Putin and, and his, his his cronies. Uh, but there's as you said, there's there's a long uh, history of of corruption in in Russian government. Is this is what we're what we've seen with Putin really something something different, or is this just kind of more more of the same? Well, you know, it's a wonderful question. If you go back to Navalny's video, that's precisely the question he tries to answer at the end of his video. So a lot of it is documentary evidence of corruption, and there's you know, some images, and of course the palace that Putin has built and you know, sort of his mistresses and how he funnels money to them. And there's all of that. But at the very end, you know, sort of Navalny appeals to the Russian people and basically says, you know, we've put up with this. We have patience. We've lived with it. You know, let's let's stop doing so. And uh, it's, it's a moving appeal that he makes at the end of the video uh, and is clearly resonating in Russia because that's precisely why people are out uh, on the streets. Uh, on the one hand, you know, you could say that there's, a long tradition of indifference, uh, because this is how things have been, uh, going back, uh, you know, a, a sort of very long time, uh, and presumably it's how things will be fifty or hundred years from now. In Russia, the fundamental dilemma is that you don't have a legal system in the country; you don't have courts of law that are independent of uh, of, ex- of executive power. It is a sort of democratic problem at the uh, at the heart of Russian corruption. So it's possible to steal. Uh, with impunity. But there is a difference, I would say, from, say, corruption in Soviet times. Uh, and this is the scale of the corruption. So, you know, Soviet leaders also lived lives apart. They had consumer goods that the rest of the country didn't have. They had special shops that the rest of the country didn't have. They had hard currency. Uh, and, you know, that was incredibly corrupt. And it was, you know, outrageously corrupt, given what communism and Marxism was supposed to be uh, was supposed to be about, so it was 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 grievously uh, hypocritical. But uh, the distance between a Soviet elite and a regular Soviet citizen was much smaller than the distance between Putin uh, and his cronies and the average Russian now, because Russia has become integrated with the West. That's the whole complexity of the situation. In the Soviet Union, Soviet times, there really was an Iron Curtain, and there was a Soviet economy, and there was a Western European and an American economy, and there was a certain amount of trade, and the Soviet Union borrowed money. 
uh, and some people went back and forth, but these were two separate worlds. What's happened after 1991 uh, is that Russia has entered uh, into the Western world in many ways. And, you know, a lot of these Russian oligarchs and others sort of own property in London or Miami or New York, uh, elsewhere. A lot of their money comes from selling uh, oil and gas uh, to the West. Um, and that's a source of great wealth for Putin, but in other respects, it's a source of great vulnerability. So one of the interesting questions with the Navalny video is how did he get all of that information? In the Soviet Union, you wouldn't have had somebody sort of stand up and be able to point to the financial documents of, of, of Leonid Brezhnev or, or, or Khrushchev. I mean, it was way out of limits. It was, uh, you would never have gotten a hold of those. And, you know, some of Navalny's documents come from the Panama Papers. I'm not sure myself how much to trust those papers. Uh, but that's one of the dilemmas of the Russian government is that they have globalized. And that's given them huge wealth, but it's also created all of these uh, these vulnerabilities. So there is something new about the scale uh, of corruption in Russia. The the extreme wealth that Putin has uh, is, I think, uh, a, a serious factor. But there's also something about the transparency. We might want to throw social media here into the mix. Um, you can control information in the U.S. up to a point, uh, but you know, celebrities and others know that a lot of stuff is just out there in the public sphere uh, because of social media. How do you run an authoritarian regime in an age of social media? I think it's harder. So uh, it's harder to hide your corruption. Uh, it's 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 sort of harder to cover your tracks, uh, and that has become, I would say, it's more than an Achilles heel of Putin. It's sort of a larger uh, area of vulnerability, and, and and Navalny has just honed in on that, uh, honed in on that brilliantly. So that I think, in some, explains why Russians have not responded by throwing up their hands and saying, well. You know, that's how the world is or that's how Russia is. Uh, that explains, in addition to generational factors and some other factors, this new level of outrage, anger, uh, desire for change, which um, which is which is utterly intriguing in Russia at the present moment. Yeah. Uh, so, Michael, what what are you going to be watching for as the situation continues to unfold to see whether you know we might be on on the precipice of 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 a change or, or maybe kind of heading for more of the, the status quo or perhaps something in between i think that um you know you could you could watch three separate storylines unfold and then all of us and sort of as best we can should try analytically to connect these three story Line. So one will be Putin's relationship with President Biden uh, and with the West. Um, and you can imagine here two scenarios that uh, Putin could try to conciliate. He could try to cut a few deals maybe in Ukraine. Uh, you know, he could try to, uh, uh, you know, loosen some of the tension or, or moderate some of the tension uh, as a, you know, way of showing that he's not such a... <laughs> You know, he's not such an authoritarian that uh, maybe he can get some sanctions relief and, and show the younger generation that there are prospects of greater integration with uh, the world economy, with the outside world. Uh, and he could sort of soften up. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's one possibility. I think the more likely possibility is that Putin is going to try to generate a few confrontations with the West and create a different storyline in Russia, create a different uh, uh, set of problems, and then try to, you know, blame the West increasingly for Russia's ills and problems. How successful that will be, I really don't know. Um, it's, uh, um, you know, it, it, there's something a little bit exhausted about that technique, but, uh, uh, you know, I think it's something that Putin will try. And also we want to watch how our own governments uh, respond to this. Germany, France, Britain, um, Japan, China, uh, United States play a big role uh, in all of this. Uh, and, you know, we don't really have much of a Russia strategy uh, at the moment. And so <laughs> how are we going to sort of chart our course and what are we going to emphasize? And that's something we should certainly uh, be watching. Secondly, you know, I think that you want to look for the crystallization of grassroots support. So in a social media age, I think this is why it is important to go back and study Egypt and go back and study the Arab Spring. Um, you know, social media is very good at mobilizing people. It's very good at conveying information. It's very good at undermining official narratives. All of that has happened at once with the Navalny video uh, and his you know, sort of advocacy in the last couple of weeks and months. Uh, but social media and the sort of contemporary political world that we inhabit is not so good at creating ordered, structured, you know, very goal-directed uh, movements. And so 
that's something I would look for. Does Russia start to develop that? Do you start to see an opposition movement that has not just Navalny as a, you know, sort of leader, but uh, a real leadership structure? And do they offer a viable alternative to, uh, to what Putin represents? And that I think would be a, a big step forward for the opposition and, and would be a, a, be something really, really uh, significant so that, you know, Russians could consider, is it worth betting on Navalny? Does he really have something that uh, could be new and better from what we have with Putin. Thirdly, and not, not the least important factor by any means, what is the nature of loyalty and support uh, for the government? You know, if we would go back and look at New York Times articles and, 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 and tweets about Belarus, 90% of them are about the opposition. And that's been true in the last two weeks uh, for Russia, but uh, we don't want to forget what makes these regimes tick uh, and really study those ingredients. And uh, also there, we can kind of look for changes. Do you see a hardening? Do you see that people are, are, are afraid of losing their property and losing their power and their position? So they're really going to fall into line behind Putin. Or on the other hand, do we see dissension that, you know, this is a weakening of Putin. It's a moment of, 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 uh, of uh, you know, sort of turmoil. And maybe you can muscle him out of the scene and, 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 uh, and, and, and supplant him. I mean, you know, take whatever Shakespeare play is most uh, relevant here and sort of, and sort of plug it in. Uh, is it is it King Lear that's most relevant? Uh, is it uh, uh, is it Coriolanus? Is it you know uh, you know some palace intrigue that's going to help us to understand this uh, this moment? But I think that the regime and its um, underpinnings uh, is the third part of the puzzle and one that we have to look at carefully. And I think because we Americans are sort of inherently drawn to democracy, we're drawn to opposition movements. We have this uh, long period of tension and, and difficulty with Russia. We're going to sympathize with Navalny, but intellectually, we have to understand the nature of sympathy for Putin. So it's almost a harder job. So if, if I were a journalist, that's uh, I would sort of go out of my way to try to bring that story to American readers and make us understand. And then if we can bring these three points together into some kind of synthesis, the international dimension, uh, the protest dimension, uh, and the sort of regime dimension, I think we'll, we'll, we'll have the key to the puzzle. Well, uh, Michael, you've you've done a great job uh, helping us understand these these three dimensions and the the many complexities and and facets and history of of this developing story in Russia. So, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jenna and Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast. The show is produced by Zachary Tarrant and me, Sydney Simon. 